You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want to inspire you to be in your own financial front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, how to reach your goals, and by having an annual checkup. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her money comes to you through PRX. Hey everyone, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So did you know in 2016, for the first time ever, there were more women in their early 30s having babies than younger women, according to the CDC. And there are more women having children in their later 30s, their 40s, and their 50s, too. Why is that? Well, there are a number of sociological reasons, but a big technological one is that more women can. Thanks to advancements in reproductive technology, more women are able to freeze their eggs and hopefully freeze time, at least just a little bit. And whether they're doing this because they are uncertain about wanting children or focusing on their careers or trying to find the right partner, or you can insert your own reason right here. The goal in all of this is to increase your chances of being able to have kids later in life. The thing is, and you know this, if you've been listening to the news, there is no guarantee that it'll work or that if it does work, something won't go wrong down the line. Not to mention, it can cost thousands and thousands of dollars, all of which is why we invited a woman who has experienced all of this firsthand to be our guest on the show. Bridget Adams is founder of Eggsurance, which is the first egg freezing community and education site. And its guiding principle is to build a safe, welcoming egg freezing community for women who want to explore their options and share their stories. And even if egg freezing isn't something that you're thinking about right now, this is an issue and a conversation that is changing the landscape and the possibilities for women as a whole. And so, Bridget, I'm really, really glad you're here. Me too. Thanks for having me. So we have to start with your story. Take me back to right before your 39th birthday when you decided that you were going to freeze your eggs. What was going on in your life and why did you decide to do it? Um, At that point in my life, really, I had always expected my life to sort of take this linear path of, you know, education, marriage, uh, kids. And I got divorced when I was around 33. Mm-hmm. And that sort of put a, a big wrench in the path. And, um, you know, I really was focused on my career. I'd gone back to grad school. And it just, you know, I got sort of carried away with other things. And all of a sudden, I looked up and I was 38 and still single. And those dots never magically connected themselves, you know, in my life at the right time. And so what made you think, well, maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll freeze my eggs so that I can buy some more time. It was really a friend who had gone through um, IVF and gone through one round successfully and a second round unsuccessfully. And she basically shook me (laughs) and said, you know, you're not getting any younger. If you're thinking about having kids, you've got to get into action now. And it took me from that conversation a full year and a half 
which I regret now because I'm sure between that year and a half, you know, my egg quality did decline. Well, you're you're jumping ahead a little bit, but it wasn't a happy story, right? I mean, you went through the process. What exactly is the process? I've never experienced it, and I think a lot of other women are probably just as confused as I am. I was just as confused until I got into the process myself. Um, really, what they're doing is pumping your body full of hormones, so you are producing or yielding as many eggs as possible. So it's about a 10 to 12 day active sort of putting, um, you know, shots and going back to blood tests, making sure everything is okay. And then at about day 12, you take um, a shot called a trigger shot, which basically releases the eggs, sort of tells them, okay, you know, um, they're ready to go. And then the procedure to extract your eggs is about a 10 to 15 minute procedure. You're asleep um, and you wake up and, uh, you know, they've, they freeze the mature eggs that have made it successfully. So you were able to freeze 11 eggs, right? Is that about average? You know, at at the time, I thought it was a, a good number for, for my age, and it's very much age dependent. Um, you know, that was a, a decent number. Looking back now, and you know, I, there's many things I wish I had done differently. But at the time, I thought, you know, 11 seemed like a good number and my doctors were not pushing me to do another cycle or evaluate doing another cycle. So I just thought, you know, if if they're not giving me any recommendations, I'm sort of, you know, safe with this number. How much did that cost? Um, About 19,000 for everything. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of money. And, and one thing I've noticed over the years, so I froze my eggs, um, you know, almost seven years ago at this point, and definitely numbers have come down a good 15 to 20%, but there are a lot of hidden costs. And this is one thing that, you know, I don't think people factor in when they get a number that might be lowballed. Let's talk about that in a second, but what happened to you next? When I froze my eggs, I said I would never become a single mom. I would never have kids after 42. And, um, neither of those things turned out to be true. I, when I still hadn't met anyone when I was around sort of 42, I decided, you know, maybe single motherhood is something I, I, I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was lucky to have, you know, those few years to sort of realize that that was something that, you know, it, it's something that I could consider. I had a family unit that would be helpful. And, um, and so I, I started to think about it and sort of changed my life around, um, moved closer to my family to be able to do it. And, um, you know, finally decided, and it was a long process. It was about four years of really getting to that point that I was ready to be a single mom and ready to use my eggs. And, um, I defrosted them, um, in December of 2016, and started the the donor sperm donor process. And so you go from that, you find a donor sperm, which I guess is probably one of the hidden costs. Exactly. I mean, what else has to happen in order to get to an embryo and implant the embryo? And, and are all of those other things, new line items sort of on the price tag? They are. Once you freeze your eggs, you know that my 19,000 was just part one of freezing my eggs all the medication involved, all the pre-consults, you know, you, your money starts again at zero when you're actually going back to use them. 
So there are a lot of stages and a lot of stages that I think when you're freezing your eggs, you just focus on, you know, I'm just going to freeze them. I'm not going to think about them, which, you know, in a way is very compartmentalized and probably should be because there's so many emotions with it. But when you go to use your eggs there, you have to defrost the eggs. They have to survive the defrost cycle. You have to fertilize them. Then nowadays, most clinics um, use genetic testing. So they grow the egg out for five days or five or six day blastocyst stage, which they can take a, a biopsy of the blastocyst and test it. So that's another stage. And then from there, the embryos that are normal, then you can decide to implant them. So there's about four or five steps after initially freezing your eggs that when you start to see those steps and you start to see the percent of success attached to each of those steps, that's something I wasn't aware of and hadn't been talked through. So all of those steps, too, are additional costs. Let's come back and talk about those additional steps, the chances of success, and what happened after you implanted your embryo in just a second. But before we get there, I just want to remind everybody that Her Money is sponsored by Fidelity Investments. We are working together to encourage all women to be in the front seat when it comes to their financial health. Why? Because women are in the driver's seat in so many aspects of our lives, managing our careers, our families, and yet when it comes to making decisions about money, too many women still delegate to someone else. One thing is clear, when it comes to investing, you always want to be in the front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, what your goals are, and by having an annual checkup. You can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We're having a conversation with Bridget Adams. She's the founder of eggsurance.com, hearing about her own experience freezing her eggs and her advice for so many other women who are thinking about going through this process. So bring us up to speed. You fertilized your eggs. What happened? I fertilized my eggs and I went from 11 mature eggs to one embryo um, that was viable to be tested in a matter of six days. One, you went 11 to one. Now, you said yeah. the odds were lower than you thought they were. So does this happen all the time? You know, it's happening more and more, and it's happening more and more because people are actually coming back to use their eggs, and there's more data, and um, and it really, you know, is dependent on age of your frozen eggs, how healthy you were, what your ovarian reserve looked like when you, you know, did freeze your eggs. But with my age and what I'm learning now about my body at that time, um, my doctor said that was actually what he would have given me as an odds. When you say it's happening more because more women are coming back to use their eggs, is that because it's just such a new science? Or is it because we had a, an OBGYN, my OBGYN actually, on the show, and she said that in her practice, often egg freezing is, they joke about it as a guarantee that you're going to meet Mr. Wright the next week. Um, <laughs> is it one or is it the other? Uh, I think it's the other. I mean, if only I'd met Mr. Wright the next week, <laughs> that would have been wonderful. But it's really, when I froze my eggs in 2011, that was sort of the early adopter phase 
where the technology was um, fissurification, which is the fast freezing process, was they were getting better and better at it. Slow freezing, the previous process, really had a lot of issues and structural issues with the eggs when they were defrosted. So I was sort of at a cusp of women coming and really using them more. And then like me, you know, mine had been on ice for about six years of either coming back and saying, I'm ready to use my eggs or, um, you know, I still haven't met anyone. I'm ready to be a single mom or deciding to stop paying the storage fee. So it's a mix of, you know, I, I think timing and having enough time to be on ice that there was sort of a, another wave of um, women coming back to, you know, various degrees of success. Uh, as you moved through the process, you, you didn't have a good result. I alluded to that before. No, I had a, a pretty devastating result. I had to wait for three weeks to see if that one embryo was going to be genetically normal. And so that was a very hard three weeks over Christmas last year. <laughs> and I found out it was genetically normal. And, you know, I was obviously over the moon. I had it, um, it transferred, it implanted. My first beta pregnancy test was positive, And my second was negative 48 hours later. What does that mean? So, so basically I had a, a chemical pregnancy where um, my body was sort of emitting pregnancy hormones that the embryo had implanted, but it stopped growing. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, <laughs> it was a, um, you know, it was a, yeah, it was, it just happened actually almost a year ago right now. So um, it was, and it wasn't so much, I think, you know, had I had another embryo on ice, it would have been a different thing. But this was really mourning the fact that I had a chemical pregnancy and mourning the fact that at age 44 at that point, um, you know, I didn't have any more viable eggs. So really mourning the fact of ever having a genetic child. Wow. I think there's so much to take in here. I mean, there's so many losses in this equation. And of course, you know, the loss of the potential pregnancy is a huge one. But there was a lot of time involved. There was a ton of money and resources involved. You changed your entire life by moving close to your family. Do you think that women who are freezing their eggs, and kudos to the companies who have started to provide financing for this and the employers who've started to offer some benefits that cover it, do you think that women really understand it? No. <laughs> and I didn't. And I was have been sort of immersed in this world for a good six years now. I think that it's with any new technology, you know, there's understandings and there's learning curves. And I think that you wrap that up with um, something that is so emotional and so personal and so, you know, potentially devastating that, you know, it's it can become you want to believe your doctors. You want to sort of go with the protocol. They say you don't know the questions to ask and you just sort of go down that path in retrospect um, and I think for me, part of it was a little bit of embarrassment of I was very pro egg freezing and I still am. I'm still an advocate. But I thought, you know, if this doesn't work for me, 
how many other women is this not working for or will not work for? Well, and there are systemic problems, it looks like. I mean, we are just, we're recording this show in the middle of March, and in the news is this horrible story about storage facilities, egg storage facilities, embryo storage facilities, and how they have failed. So what happened? You know, and when I heard those, I mean, the chance of two very reputable clinics on the same day having liquid nitrogen malfunctions of their storage tanks, I mean, it just shows you, I think it really highlights that this is still a technology you know, anything and any everything can go wrong. And just because you've you've gone and frozen your eggs and been proactive, you know, you still, and what I found through my story is you still need a plan C. Those eggs are not guaranteed to work. Um, you know, you could lose them in a shipment to another clinic. You could lose them in a, a storage malfunction. There's so many that you might not have a great lab and their process is not great and you, you know, it doesn't work. So There's so many variables. But you can increase your odds by shopping around, right? This is is similar to a lot of other industries and practices where there are higher quality clinics than others, correct? Correct. So how do you find them? So I spent um, a long time uh, sort of looking at clinics and looking at data and – there, the Society of American Reproductive Technology has has actually they're required to put IVF rates down. Egg freezing rates have not been required yet, but you can extrapolate from IVF rates in terms of how good the lab is. You know, success live birth rates based on age. Um, you can also there are a few websites now that have reviews of doctors and actually people coming back when they've used their eggs and, um, you know, the success rates there. There is, and also one thing people often overlook is looking at the embryology lab. That's one of the most important aspects of egg freezing. And no one ever meets an embryologist. No one ever really understands what's going beyond, you know, behind those closed doors. So when you say look at them, what do you have to do? Um, look at who's involved in the lab, look at how long they've been doing it, how long they've been doing vitrification, which is the de facto egg freezing method nowadays, how many eggs they freeze annually, um, you know, how many defrost successfully. There are questions you can ask, but I think when you get into the whole egg freezing process and really, you know, fertility and IVF as a whole, it's so overwhelming and so confusing and so ridden with emotions that you almost want to just sort of take someone's lead. And I think, you know, there are a lot of doctors who sort of gloss over the data and, you know, say, oh, it's not important. And really at the end of the day, when you're putting this much money, time and your future child into the hands of a clinic or a doctor, um, for me, after going through the process, I went through data Um, or whatever you can find from it is the absolute most important because at the end of the day, that's really all you can look back at. Are these the kind of leads that you can get on eggsurance? Yes, I've broken down um, sort of some ways I've looked at at different clinics, you know, ways you can look at success rates. One thing that a lot of people don't know is if you look at a clinic's donor egg life birth rate, 
it's a good indication of the health of the clinic as a whole. A donor usually is, you know, under 29. So they're in a much lower age bracket. They've been heavily vetted and they are, you know, selected as, um, you know, potentially good, good fit health wise. So if you're looking at a lab and you look at labs A and B and, you know, A has a stellar donor, you know, live birth rate and B doesn't, that's kind of an indication that there may be something wrong with, you know, maybe the lab's not up to snuff. Why is there, their donor rates are the healthiest and should be the most viable for pre- pregnancy. So there's things like that reading between the lines. And I just really taught myself how to read between the lines. Well, and not only how to read between the lines, but how to use the information that you got between the lines. We should tell everybody that yeah. the story has a happy ending because you did go through the donor process and you're pregnant. I am. I am uh, just started my third trimester. I'm 28 weeks with the little girl. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> well, Thank we, you. I think this is such an important topic and it's amazing to be able to hear about it from somebody who's actually lived it. So thank you for sharing, and we'll link to Eggsurance, and we wish you and your little girl all the luck in the world. Thank you very much. And I hope you have a very, very short labor. <laughs> it's going to be a C-section. There you go. All right. <laughs> thank you, Bridget. Thank you. And Kelly is in the studio with me. I'm happy for her and sad for her at the same time. I don't like to think that these clinics are selling people a bill of goods that they can't deliver on. It's so distressing to think that you are banking quite literally on this technology that just doesn't have good odds of working and that you don't know what those odds are. And she comes from a marketing background. So... She even was like, you know, I get why they're marketing it the way that they are, but now that I've gone through it, it infuriates her. Like, it's just, it's not the solution, like the, you know, fail-proof solution. It's not the magic means to have children later in life. Like, it's a huge gamble. Yeah. It's a huge gamble, and they're not communicating that, and there are more fertility clinics now than there were when she first went through this, which means it actually has been more available to more women at lower prices. So more women are doing it. And she says, she's like, more women are doing it, but they're just as ill-informed as I was back in 2011. Well, we will spread the word a little bit. The Today Show just did a segment or two. Mm -hmm. The uh, fact that the two reputable clinics had storage problems, that's really going to (sighs) open the door on this, I think. Absolutely. And I also loved her point, like, the lab people or the embryologists Mm -hmm. are more important than the doctors. When uh, we were in the hospital with Jake when he was having his heart surgeries when he was younger, I mean, nobody was more important than the doctors, but boy, the nurses were so important. Mm -hmm. And there were some unbelievable nurses that made an unbelievable difference. Mm -hmm. So I I totally believe that. It's about the team. It's like taking a look at everyone who is going to be Um, a part of the process, whatever medical process that is, but to not discount or overlook like what each team member has and is bringing to the table. Yeah, totally.
totally agree. Okay. All right. On that happy Ooh, note, I know. Yeah. Breathe. Ooh. And what do we have? Okay. Our first question is from Dudley, who froze all of her accounts post Equifax breach. Her understanding was that the freeze only lasts three months. She's wondering if she should freeze every three months, or is she thinking of something else that I don't understand? No, she's thinking of something else. Okay. So there is something called a fraud alert. Uh, a fraud alert is the temporary solution. It does go away after three months, unless you have what's called an extended fraud alert, in which case it lasts a little bit longer, but it is still temporary. A freeze is permanent until you undo it. So do not worry, Dudley. Or if you do have something that says it's up in three months, maybe go back and make sure you froze your account. Yeah, make sure what you got was actually a freeze and not a fraud alert. Okay, that's a good question. I didn't know that. Next one from Jessica. She writes, my mom cashed out her life insurance policy for several reasons and has decided to give each of her four children the cash if and only if we invest it. I'll be receiving 12500 and I'm not sure what to do next. I currently work as a contractor, so I have no 401k or option for employee contribution. With my current savings rate, I'm on track to reach my six-month emergency fund goal. I currently have 3000 on a Roth IRA, and I plan to transfer my emergency fund savings to my retirement account. Long story short, what should I do with this money? I'm 28 and make about 40000 annually, and I feel extremely behind on my retirement. I plan on saving the money for the long term, but I'm not sure about how to best allocate the funds. Should I max out my Roth IRA, open an aggressive mutual fund, make a safe option, and put it in a target fund, or do I invest some directly into stocks? Okay, so let's separate the pieces of this puzzle. First of all, this is great. You know, this is great. $12,500, that's a lot of money, mm -hmm. and it can get you very near to where you should be as far as accumulating savings in your 30s by the time you hit 30 equal to one time your annual income. So it may take you a couple of years, but you will be on the right track to get there. There is a difference between an account and an asset. An account is the bucket into which you put your investments. And some accounts have tax advantages. So an IRA is an account. A Roth IRA is an account. A 401k is an account. A SEP IRA is an account. A brokerage account is an account. And you open whichever one of these makes the most sense for you, and then you put your money into it. And once your money is there, you use it to buy investments. And investments are stocks, bonds, mutual funds, index funds, target date funds. And we'll talk in just a second about how to pick the right ones of those. But let's just focus on what is the right account. She's self-employed. Mm -hmm. So because you're an independent contractor, you have the ability to open a SEP IRA, which is a way to shelter more money from taxes than you could using a traditional IRA. A traditional IRA is an account that you fund using pre-tax dollars. The money grows tax-deferred, and when you pull it out, you have to pay income taxes at your current rate, whatever that happens to be down the road five decades. A Roth IRA is one that you fund with money on which you've already paid taxes, and then the money can grow and grow and grow and grow, and you never have to pay taxes again, even when you pull it out. Generally, Roth IRAs are beneficial for younger people because we don't know what's going to happen to tax rates so far in the future, and it's nice to be able to have a bigger base of money on which to grow. 
But I would suggest for her, neither of those options. I'd actually suggest a SEP IRA. And that's because you can put more money into a SEP IRA. So a SEP IRA allows you to contribute up to 25% of your self-employment income, which is up at with a cap of over $50,000 a year. That would allow her to get closer to investing the whole $12,000 or at least $10,000 of it in one fell swoop. Now, once it's in the account, you got to do something with it. You're really, really young. And so that argues for having the majority of your money in stocks. I like a target date retirement fund, which is a fund that has a date in the title that lines up with approximately when you think you're going to want to retire because they're super easy. You just put all your money in that and the fund manager keeps it invested in sync with your age and your risk tolerance, which means that as you get older, you'll have a little bit less money in stocks every single year. Fantastic. Thank you. And we'll do one more from Mary Pat. We have been fortunate and have healthy 529 accounts for both of our teenage children. My son is a freshman and recently was hired as resident assistant, which will cover room and board. With that, there may be excess in his account. We are thinking about using some of these funds to help boost my career. I took a break to raise the kids, and it has been very difficult to get reengaged at the appropriate level. I got my MBA over 20 years ago, and it doesn't carry much weight now. Is it worth it to take some classes or get another degree in my 50s? Any suggestions on what training or classes will get me back to at least a senior manager level? Thanks for the consideration and any advice. I love this idea. I know. First of all, I love the idea of taking classes that'll get you back on track. I'm not sure exactly which classes are going to lead you in the right direction. I mean, we're, yeah. we're hearing a lot of things about coding these days mm-hmm. and business classes. I think look for the job that you want. Look for job descriptions and companies that are hiring people who have qualifications kind of like yours, but maybe a little bit more, and then see what they're asking those people to know. It may not be formalized college classes. It may be training in particular computer programs or other hands-on things that you need to know to be up and running really quickly. And yeah, if you're coming at it from a place of like, you don't need the money, but you want to go back in and make some more money or just be working again because it's important to you, be selective. And it's hard for me to imagine that your MBA is worthless. No, I don't think it's worthless either. I I think you probably need a little confidence. Maybe you need a little brushing up in your skills as far as social media is concerned. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's technology. For a lot of women my age, it's technology where we feel a little out of our depth. And so I'd say take a look at the lay of the land, see what makes sense, and go for it. And yes, you can transfer those 529 funds into an account where they can work for you. That is so cool. Great question. Well, yeah. thank you, everyone, for your questions. You can go to jeanchatsky.com slash podcast and submit them there. Thank you so much. So today, in lieu of Thrive, we have Hayden Helps. Hayden Field is on the case, and she's saving somebody a lot of money. What do you have? So we had a listener named Lindsay write in about student loan refinance options. She has over 110000 in student loans. She's a therapist for a nonprofit hospital, and she just wants to get her interest rates down. You, right now, they range from 4 to 8%, and her goal rate is closer to 3%. Which is totally possible. 
Absolutely. And she has excellent credit. Okay. Good to know. So um, she wrote in, asked if we could work our magic. I did some research on the best refi options, and I made her accounts at Common Bond, SoFi, Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, MIFA, Education Loan Finance, Ernest, Lindkey, and Laurel Road, which is the one you saw on the train this morning. Yeah, a new one in the marketplace that I hadn't heard of. Looked at all the rates. We compared with and without her co-signer, who's her husband. Okay. And we came up with a lot of different options. SoFi gave her a rate around 6.3%, and we knew we could do better than that. Lindkey gave her an offering around 2.5%, and that's for a five-year variable APR. And the monthly payment was a little higher than she wanted, so she could do it, but she thinks she's going to go with a seven-year instead just to make things more comfortable. Well, just to be clear, I mean, you're taking her from a 10-year term where she had a $600 monthly payment to a much shorter term. So it's it's there are reasons that her payment would go up or would not be as low— you, just to be clear, you're taking her from a 10-year term into a five- or seven-year term. So she's going to get out of debt a lot sooner. Absolutely. And she's going to save a lot of money on interest. Um, the ones she narrowed it down to, I'm pretty sure she's going to pick one in the low 3% range. And it turns out she's going to save 23500 in that neighborhood on interest. That's incredible. Really, really great job. I don't think a lot of people or at least enough people understand that refinancing their package of student loans to grab a lower interest rate is even an option. I definitely didn't until I started working for you. And actually, our new team member, Hattie, also has 110000 in student loans. And we just did this for her this morning. So she's going to end up picking a lower interest rate as well. So TBD on that. Okay. You'll keep us posted. Thank you, Hayden. Thanks. And thank you for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Bridget Adams for the fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track tribe and our show comes to you through prx join us next week when we'll be back with another great guest